if your CEO comes to you and says, customer service is really important to us, but you don't measure it, you don't hire good people for it, you don't train those people for it, you don't reward and recognize for it, then it doesn't matter what your mouth is saying, your team don't believe you. And it starts to break down the trust in your organization. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance. Scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Brett Putter. Brett is talking to me from isolation in Chiswick. He is a reformed recruiter who saw the light when he was doing executive search for some CEOs who really got culture in their businesses. And what they forced him to do was they forced him to go and hire based on behaviors. And that made his search harder. And it wasn't something he was necessarily keen to do, but he did it. And then he saw the powerful impact of hiring great employees into a business that was clear about its culture and knew what behaviors it was looking for and the impact that those employees had in that business. Uh, He tells the story about how he did that for an Israeli firm. He also has, in his research for his up-and-coming book, I mean, his existing book, which is why he's a guest today, is is Culture Dex Decoded. But he's been researching a new book called The Culture-Driven Leader. And one of the things he says is, look, Only one in 10 of the CEOs who think they have a great business and a great culture actually do. And of those, only 5% of the people that he's been able to interview can clearly articulate their culture and have some stories to tell about how they make it real. And so I just think culture gives us, again, doubling down on culture, getting really clear about the behaviors that we want. It's our only source of sustainable competitive advantage. So I really enjoyed chatting to Brett today. I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation we had. Brett Putter from Culture Gene, and we are a culture development consultancy and software business. What does the software do? So the software is actually a replication of my process. I take companies through a 12-month process typically, and the software helps me transition and take companies through that. Um, So for example, there is a process for defining a company's values that we ask the team to get involved in, and they will log in and go through the process. Uh, We take the values and extend those to expected behaviors, which the team will do. The software helps to train on feedback, train on um, how to give and receive feedback, as well as give and um, receive thanks, gratitude, high fives, that kind of thing. So it's a platform that we're developing that really mimics the process that I follow. 
Ah, okay. And so it just helps that process embed your thinking and the process in the business whilst you're not there working with them, doing workshops and follow-up. Exactly, yeah. So so I would typically go into a company and sit down with 12 people in a room and go through a, a workshop. We now do the workshop online following the software process. And then the software has different modules that companies can use if they want to, for example, have an employee of the month award. They can use the software to do that. Okay. Okay, very good. But the reason I invited you on today was because you you wrote a fantastic book called Culture Decks Decoded. And so, what's the genesis of what's the genesis of that? Well, thank you. It's um, it's actually the result of of a failure. And I started writing the first book that I'm about to finish before Culture Decks Decoded, and I went out to really find out what it is that companies do to define, embed, and manage their culture. And so I've interviewed over 70 CEOs uh, for the first book and um, blogged about that and then started writing the first book and then just hit a wall. I couldn't see the words for the trees. It was just impossible. The writing was just swirling in front of me. And I'm not a very good writer. It's hard work. It's like wrestling an anaconda every time I (laughs) write something. I decided, you know, enough of this, and, and decided to focus on an ebook, a marketing book, to go with the first book. When I eventually got back to writing it again, and that's what Culture Dex Decoded started out as. It literally was supposed to be a high-level look at Culture Dex because I'd written a blog about it, and it's my most popular blog. It continues to be my most read blog, and so I thought there's there is some interest here. And it just developed and developed. It was relatively easy to write in in comparison because I'm commenting on slides of other people's work and giving either a subject matter expert's perspective or a potential employee's perspective. Yes. Which companies did you do you cover in the book for those who haven't read it yet? Whose decks did you deem worthy of inclusion? Yeah. So the granddaddy is the Netflix deck, which is which is my favorite because it. You know, it's 125 pages and it just lays it out. But I included Patreon, I included Valve, I included Hotjar, HubSpot, and LinkedIn, GoDaddy. So I've included different decks, but essentially what I what I did is I looked at what do these companies do around mission? What do these companies do around vision, around values, around diversity and inclusion, around feedback, around transparency, and then chose the slides that really jumped out at me, either for the words or the design or both, and then sort of dug into those slides in more detail. So it would be reasonable to suggest that if you if you're a company who wants to try and wrestle with your culture and get it down on paper, that going through your book is a you know here's a best of the rest. It gives you a sense of either inspiration or or benchmarking. Yeah, it, it's meant, meant as that inspiration or benchmarking. If you're starting from scratch, it's a great book to just read and go, okay, wow, this is where you've got to with their culture. And if you are much further down the line and you need to document your culture, then it is a really nice template for doing that. And actually, now that we're all remote, I'm not sure how long we'll all be remote for, 
but now that we're all remote, one of the things you have to do is document, 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 document. So it's a really great start towards documenting your culture. What stood out to you, or that you know, you did, you you said you'd written a blog, uh, you'd written your blog article, so you went into it with your eyes wide open. But what what surprised you? What surprised me is that how similar cultures sound. You know, some companies use the same words for their values. But actually, if you start to dig in below the surface, how different those companies are. So you've got a company like Netflix who behave, they, you know, they operate like a pro sports team and they pay top dollar and they actually say they pay top dollar and they will encourage their employees to go for interviews to see if they still at their top dollar or not. And if it's a 20% up on the person's salary because that's what they would get somewhere else, they'll just pay it. They say this very specifically in their in their deck. On the other hand, you've got companies where they operate like a pro sports team and they admittedly say that they don't pay top dollar. They want you to feel like you've sacrificed to join their company because that's their culture. So talking about such similar things, yet radically different ways of executing and operating. Fascinating. What do you, you got any other great examples like that? Patreon do a really, really good job of communicating the caring that they apply to the people they help, to the people that they, they service. You really get a deep and meaningful understanding that their job is to help all of their customers you know, really, really execute and really deliver on their, on, on their challenge of creating. So um, I think Patreon are really good. I love Valve's. It's not really a culture deck. It's more of a manifesto, so it's much much more writing, and it's almost like it's like a book. But Valve's bring the their sense of humor across so beautifully. You know, the founders absolutely take the piss out of themselves and one another in the deck, and they they admittedly say that their culture is radically different. There isn't a structure to it. It's much less structured. And if you if you are the type of person who needs structure you're not going to fit in there because it's very, very unstructured. And in a way, the uh, the Valve stuff is, um, it's sort of the staff handbook that you wish that you had in companies you'd been in rather than the one that was written by HR and the lawyers, you know, that talks about their grievance process that, you know, is hard work and you actually have to sign to say you've read it as opposed to a document that is uplifting and informative and useful. Yeah, exactly. And they, they cover everything, all the bases that they need to cover, but they do it with such a great sense of humor and, and such humility in a way as well. You know, they, the founders clearly are, you almost want exactly, you want to work there and you wish the companies that you had worked for were like them. Yes. And so what, what's your genesis though? Like how come you ended up on this, you know, obsessed about culture? So I ran a, an executive search firm for 16, 17 years. And I was very fortunate, it must be about five years ago now, very fortunate to work with three CEOs who had very a very clear understanding of their culture. And actually, I was asked to find candidates with the right match for the skills and experience required, as well as candidates that matched the values specifically. And I worked with these three 
almost one after the other during the course of, of six to nine months. And that's when the, the penny dropped for me about company culture. That's when I realized it was the missing link because it was a much harder search to do. We worked much harder to do the, do the searches. I mean, it's hard enough to find candidates, now find candidates that match values. And it took us a long time to get our heads around that. But once we got it right, it just changed the game because you could, if you understood the values and the value drivers of the company and of the leadership, you could find candidates with those value drivers and similar values, not exactly the same, but similar. And you would see that connection happen when during the interview process. And the results with those three companies were significantly better over time that we saw both in terms of value adds to the culture that the candidates brought and you know outcome and results. And so I then started, basically started talking to my clients more about the values than about the roles. I created a list of 100 values and would sit down with the CEO or the head of HR or whoever was the hiring person and say, here, choose 10 of these, please, and let's talk about it. And we would talk about the 10 values, why they were important, what was the drivers behind them, what behaviors resulted from those values inside the company for most of the interview, and then talk a little bit about the the role, because that was what gave me a better insight and what allowed me to do a better job for them. And that's when I started interviewing CEOs and interviewing leaders to understand what, how they built their culture and then really started researching and digging deep into the subject. So hopefully you'll be able to help me with this. So often I'm working with clients and they've got values or they, or they were, we're trying to codify their values and behaviors. And then the next question is, well, what do we do with them? And well, you know, you use them as a behavioral framework to hire and fire and promote and praise. And often they can see how they're going to get involved around the promotion and the praise piece. But the hiring piece, they often then think, oh God, now I'm going to go and have to try and find a recruiter that understands how to hire from a values perspective what did you have to do differently what does that look like hiring hiring from a values perspective how did you how did you change your executive search process to make it values based or or do you do the values after you've done the skills bit what what do you do you know we were sourcing senior executives so you have a pretty good idea uh, based on their cv whether they can do the job obviously you've got to dig down and understand if they can do the job, but you have an idea this person is in the right ballpark from pretty much the right company, blah, blah, blah. But what we, what we actually started doing was developing behavior-based questions. And this is something that I now do with my clients. So let's say that one of your clients, their value, one of their values is teamwork. The problem with teamwork is that value is open to interpretation. Your interpretation of, of teamwork could be a group of us working together with a common goal and to achieve it in a certain time. But my interpretation of the word teamwork is the team always comes first. We're not a million miles away, but I could actually, based on the same set of stimuli, make a different decision to a challenge or an issue that you could make. So, so what we do is we go, okay, teamwork, what does teamwork mean to us? And then we define those behaviors and we use a group of people to define those behaviors. And we run a workshop to do that. We shortlist those behaviors down and we say, here are your three, four or five behaviors associated with teamwork. And let's say it's my company. So 
one of the primary behaviors for me is the team always comes first. I turn that into an interview question. When last did you take one for the team and why? Now I'm interviewing you against behaviors. And I ask that interview question of all shortlisted candidates. And I can now score them against their believability for how they behave. And so I will draw up a matrix of each candidate and will score their believability. And the beauty of arts asking a behavior-based question is I can spend, if I want to, 25 minutes focusing down on that question because you're going to open up more and more and more behaviors and more and more situations that I can explore further where I can go why, 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 why and go deeper into the why and into the thinking behind it. And as you tell me about something else, because it's behavior-based, I can go and dig even further. So it's a very, very powerful interview process that I now pass on to my clients in that way. Yeah, one of my favorites was always to ask people if they could remember a time when they were sitting at work with and their manager hadn't given them anything to do. And what did they do after that? And and some people just sit there and say, well, I hadn't got any work to do, so... You know, I stared out the window and it's like, you know, that's absolutely fine. That's, that's the type of person you are. And, but this job's probably not for you. It's not, there's no wrong answer. So people, people, as you say, people open up and just tell you about themselves, which, you know, they find easy to do because it's, there's not, you're not testing them on their knowledge or skill other than, you know, their knowledge or knowledge of themselves. Yeah. So what I advise clients to do is to split that interview part of the interview process up into two. So knowledge and skills on the one hand, and I run a sort of mini top grading. I don't know if you've come across top grading, but I, I run a mini top grading uh, session and we'll run a values-based interview session. On the one hand, that could be an hour and a half, two-hour session for the, the skills and experience perspective. And then it's an hour, an hour and a half for the values-based uh, interviews. It's a deep dive into the candidate. And I can see that the tension, there's no tension at all when the most skilled candidate is a cultural fit. And then the tension probably comes in when there's a candidate that is the top of the heap for the skills thing. And then there's some debate about whether they're a cultural fit or not. Yeah, depending on how defined the culture is of the company, that's actually the easiest to remove the because if they if they're not a fit and the company really believes in hiring against values, then it's a, no. If there's any doubt, no, you know, move on. It's actually where you've got two candidates quite closely matched, and you've got to try and work out. That's that's where the tension comes in. Ah, uh, okay. Where where there, there might be then which of these is a better cultural fit? Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so it's a real real nuance. Yeah. Yeah. Aha. Uh-huh. Do you measure the impact that the the clients have in terms of, you know, you said that you said that the outcomes were better for the guys who were doing cultural. You got a sense of scale. So one of the one of the clients was an Israeli company, and you must have experienced the odd Israeli company. These guys were typical, all from the same unit in the army. You know, brutal, honest, told it like it is. Just machines and, and brilliant at it, you know, really, really good. And so finding somebody, an, Eng, an English person, with that type of – already you had to find somebody who could take and give feedback and so on. 
And the first, within probably two months, the CEO came back to me and said, Brett, this guy has upped our culture. He's already moved our culture on. And that, so that was the first point. And then, you know, the business did very well. He was the biz dev guy in the UK. And they were coming over and doing the deals. He got on, opened the market up, et cetera. So, you know, that's the example there. It was, it was both on a fundamentally strengthening the glue of the culture. You know, he, he was additive significantly. And then bringing business, which is what they needed, they needed to raise a big round. They needed to close a lot of deals. And they did all of those things. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that is a great example of where you should be hiring for not cultural fit, but but actually that people who can cultural enhancement. You know, you don't want to hire people. You want to hire people who are better that, you know, their, their strength of those behaviors is better than the average you already have. Otherwise, you're sort of deliberately diluting your culture. Exactly. You've actually um, you've used the phrase there that, that a, piece, a, little, a little piece of me dies every time a CEO <laughs> or a VC talks about culture fit. Now, this is my, it's my, it's my pet bugbear. What the fuck <laughs> is culture fit? The reason I ask the question, and when, when, when I do a, a workshop, I actually say, please, everybody, put your hands up who hires for culture fit or attempts to, and half or three quarters of the audience do. And I actually, I say another word that I shouldn't say there, and it normally starts with bull. But basically, it's impossible to hire for culture fit. Why is it impossible to hire for culture fit? Because you don't know. It doesn't matter which company you are. You don't know what your culture is because your culture is this random collection of good and bad behaviors, habits, communication styles, rituals, routines, processes, and systems that are changing all the time. So if you try and hire for culture fit, you're trying to hire for my interpretation or our small group's interpretation of our culture. And we don't actually know what it is. And if I ask, I go to the CEOs of companies and I say, write down your culture. Write it down. Tell me what it is. And they hum and they har and they try and they do this and that. And I say, okay, well, you've kind of come up with something. Would all of your colleagues say exactly the same thing? And they say, no. So I say, how can you hire for culture fit? It's bullshit. You can't. You can hire for values fit if you've done a good job about defining your values and defining the expected behaviors against those values because they are values are relatively constant over time. Culture's changing weekly or daily in some cases. So you can't hire for culture fit. If you get it right to hire for culture fit, you're hiring for what our culture is, how we work today. This is the way we work around here today. So if there are 15 people working in one office or 15 people who were working in one office and you hired for culture fit and now you've got 25 people who are working from home your culture has changed you can't hire the same way anymore you don't even know what your culture was or is sorry rent over no 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 that's fine so how do you so is that for companies that haven't defined the behaviors that they're hiring for it's a blanket thing don't talk to me about hiring for culture fit because you can't it doesn't matter who you are but you could hire for values and values form part of your culture. Okay, so you decide what bit of your culture is is the most important, the essence, the important bit, the thing that's a non-negotiable, the thing that you would preserve even if it cost you money. Correct. And the important thing is, if you've, as I said earlier, if you've done a good job of defining them, they remain constant over time. 
whether you are 20 people or 50 people or 150 people. So you are hiring for values. And that also then removes the issue about diversity and inclusion because the diversity piece, it's irrelevant how diverse they are if they fit your values, not your culture, because your culture when you are typically in tech, if you're 10 people in a room, it's nine guys and, a, and you know, maybe no 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 it's 10 guys 10 guys in the room now you're now you're just going to hire 10 more guys 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 and yeah sometimes that works but eventually when you get to 50 or 100 it doesn't so if you're hiring for values it doesn't matter you know it doesn't color shape size it doesn't matter it's your values are your values yes oh look absolutely they they uh there's a great host i listened to i was listening to uh bruce daisley interview michael uh matthew syed and he said, look, he said, if you're trying to create an Olympic running team, you know, Olympic sprinting team, relay team, you know, you'd want Usain Bolt four times. And he said, in that case, you'd absolutely be right. Diversity doesn't matter. But the moment you start doing anything mental, all the evidence says, you know, you put a diverse group of people in the room, their thought patterns are different and you get more, you get more ideas, you get and it, more ideas generates better ideas. Absolutely. And so what other pitfalls? So what's your, if that's, if, if, if hiring for culture fit is the number one, what's your number, what's your number two pet hate? Not understanding how to embed culture. Ah, go on. So what companies do is they say, here are values and they bring in a branding expert to do their brand and their values and they stick it up against the wall and they print some mouse mats. Does that change anything? No. Does it focus any minds? No. Once you've defined your values and your expected behaviors, you need to really work hard on embedding them. And there are essentially only six ways to embed your culture. There are also, so there's six primary mechanisms and there are six secondary mechanisms. So the six primary mechanisms to embed your culture are how you hire, fire, and promote, how you train, mentor, and educate, how you behave in crisis situations, where you invest and allocate resources, how you reward and recognize, and what you consistently pay attention to and control. So what you measure and control is number six. So essentially what you're looking at is six things. If your CEO comes to you and says, customer service is really important to us, but you don't measure it, you don't hire good people for it, you don't train those people for it, you don't reward and recognize for it, then it doesn't matter what your mouth is saying, your team don't believe you. And it starts to break down the trust in your organization. So essentially what people do is they get slightly carried away by what Edgar Schein, who's the godfather of company culture, defines as the reinforcing mechanisms. So your values, your mission, and your vision your company design, the systems, the rites and rituals, the stories, the legends, the myths, those things reinforce the embedding, the actual primary embedding mechanism. So if you say one of our values is transparency and you don't demonstrate that transparency in your behavior, you don't embed it, then people don't trust you. And you break your culture down because it's just that dis there's a dissonance between what you say and what you do. Exactly. So, the, so it's the embedding piece that most CEOs don't do. The other point about this: so 
when I interviewed, I interviewed 70 CEOs. I stopped counting the number of companies I asked, do you have a strong enough culture for me to interview you at 500? It's about, <laughs> it's about one in 10 companies has done something about their culture and half of that are doing something decent about their culture. Wow. I don't know why, I'm just, but I'm absolutely staggered by those those numbers. I, I just couldn't contemplate running a business without huge emphasis on culture and unlocking discretionary effort and trying to run it like a pro sports team. And that so many people that you found, and I, and I guess you only went to companies that you admired, you know, so you, you saw a company, you thought they might be a good candidate. You went and asked them and they went, no, not for us. And actually, occasionally they, they said yes. And as soon as I sort of started really digging under the surface into the onion, the layers of the onion, we realized actually this isn't, this, this interview isn't going all that well. Let's pull it back. Because as soon as I started to ask about behaviors or embedding or how do you promote? How do your team promote? What are you, what are you doing on, from a leadership perspective to get everybody thinking about your culture in the same way? What that says to me is that if only 5%, you know, and your sample is large enough to probably make this, you know, statistically significant, if only 5% of the businesses out there are really doing a good job around culture, it suggests to me that uh, there's a source of sustainable advantage to be had if you're the type of CEO that is inclined to think that culture is important. There is absolutely that. And a VC named David Cummings his quote, I love, and it's in, it's in the book, it's culture is the only sustainable competitive advantage that you as the CEO have complete control over. And actually, if you break that down, first of all, sustainable competitive advantage is the only one that you have complete control over. It blows my mind how many CEOs and leaders have got away with this. And let me just say now, up until now. <laughs> until now because now the chickens have come home to roost and the water is going out and we're going to see who doesn't have any clothes on. We, do, we don't know how long COVID-19 is going to last. We don't know what it's going to look like. You know, what's the world going to look like? What is business as usual going to look like when this is over? Nobody knows. Nobody has any answers. But the one thing I do know without any hesitation is that if culture is defined as the way we work around here, then every previous office-based business has changed irrevocably almost overnight. That culture has changed completely. And where the CEOs previously took their culture for granted in ways, they're not going to be able to do that anymore. If you look at it, they had the, the four walls of that office to overcome not you know, letting their culture slip or not being deliberate about their culture. And all of a sudden, they've got 20, 30, 50, 150, 200 people completely spread out where they now don't have that touch. It feels to me it's a bit, a bit like when companies started doing I don't know. It's, I suppose it's a bit like annual appraisals. I feel as though people gave up on this a long time ago. So when people started doing dress down Friday, what it meant was Monday to Thursday was just idiotic. 
And by doing Dress Down Friday, you'd admitted that the dress code was idiotic Monday to Thursday. And lots of businesses said, oh, we can't, you can't work at home uh, because I don't trust you. And now that's been shown to be a lie as well because everybody's working at home and businesses are, and the wheels are still turning. And this is, this is one of the interesting, I ran a survey of 165 startups and how they're adapting to, to work from home and published it on Forbes. I'll send, I'll send you the link if you want to add it to the show notes. That'd be brilliant. And I think the number is 72% of respondents highlighted trust as one of the essential components to transitioning successfully to this work from home culture. If you and actually, if you're a micromanager now, this is going to be damn hard to do because you're going to you're going to demoralize your team if you if you micromanage and you remove that trust element from the system. Well, it's just so hard, isn't it? Though, right? You know, if you're trying to, if you could walk up to Betsy in the office and you know micromanage her, and now she just you can't get a hold of her. You know, it's it, she's actually got the opportunity to hide from you if she wants to. And so it'll it'll drive drive people mad. I, I think I think those companies where they didn't have where they didn't have where the employees didn't have clear daily objectives, it's I'm sure it's thrown them it's an absolute spanner in their works. Yeah, absolutely. The the companies that had that you can see, you know, talking talking to these in the survey and talking to some of the CEOs, they believe actually seventy six percent believe that this work from home forced work from home will actually help their companies be more productive. But those companies all have OKRs in place. They have goals and targets, et cetera, et cetera. I also think being entrepreneurs that those companies are slightly on the optimistic side, and we're probably going to find that things are not as good as, as that in a couple of months because the reality of working from home in a lockdown situation where people have families that they didn't have at the offices, people, you know, you've got you've got you've got four or five friends sharing, having a flat share. Two people are going to be on the Xbox, another one's going to be drinking beer, and you're going to be trying to do your customer service calls. You know, th- those sorts of situations are going to. The longer this goes on for, the less people will be productive and be engaged. And now is the time where, if you have defined your culture, to really, really accelerate the promotion of it do you what do you think about uh the ideal split between because i i agree i you know i know there are examples like Basecamp and um you know word wordpress where you know those businesses have deliberately built completely remote organizations my preference is, has not never been to do that it's been to have an office that people wanted to come to and do great work with other with other human beings, but do, do you have a sense of is there a sweet spot? Do you think between you know working from home and doing deep work, or being in the office and building culture, or or is there a, or is there some stuff that people have to do differently if they're going to run a remote workforce and and build culture? That's a great question. The different piece about this is that if you look at the the companies that have really got this right, um, you know I've I've interviewed a bunch of them, including Hotjar. Their structure is different. Their documentation, they focus on documenting everything, everything. Informal communication is you know, really, really focused on. And working effect- effectively in an asynchronous manner, is these are, these are things that companies are not used to. So 
a lot of the past elements will have to be scrapped. And this new element of documentation, the informal communication and, and asynchronous working with, with different structures will be key. And I interviewed Andreas Klinger of, of AngelList, and he said, if you need to think, if you, are, if you have a five-person team working remotely, whether that's hybrid or fully remote, you need to be thinking about the processes and systems and communication you would have in place and documentation you would have in place for a 50-person company. You have to 10 times the amount of process and structure and documentation and communication you need to run a hybrid model or a fully remote model effectively. Okay, so 10x the effort to run it remotely than if you were all in the same building. And 10x the effort setting up the right structures and processes and systems. But one of the things, for example, is if you look at GitLab or the, like the really big players in, in this, um, I think GitLab are the biggest. So GitLab have 1,200 people working remotely, um, fully remote. They document every single thing. They have a, their own document management um, platform, which is live. If, it's, if somebody says it in a telephone conversation and they think it's important enough, they will go and update the documentation. If somebody says it in an email, they'll go and update uh, You know, So it's literally that it becomes, actually, in their case, documentation has become a value. Yes. A critical value. That attention, that attention to detail thing is absolutely vital in their business. And it's, and it's now vital in every business because those moments are now slipping through the cracks. The CEOs who, are, who have 50 people who are all now having video conference calls, those video conference calls would normally have been meetings and those meetings, that information would have somehow been shared at the water cooler or a random discussion or via a bunch of email. That's now slipping through the cracks. So they're going to find in two or three or four months' time that productivity is decreasing because they don't have the systems in place to deal with this. Yes. And so you mentioned earlier OKRs, which is a framework that I, I use with, with all my clients. And so are there any other tools like OKRs? You know, or is there a document management system or a way of capturing this process that, you, that, you, that you've come across that you like? There are a bunch of them. Some companies have just set up wikis. Other companies have created their own internal. But there are, GitLab actually give one of their, I think it's the light version, free, for example. So you can get going and start, start immediately using their structure. And their, their online manifesto is incredible. It's the equivalent of knowing exactly how many pimples there are on the body. They literally go, it's everything, detail, detail, detail. So it's a very detailed piece of equipment that I will document that I recommend everybody have a look at because that's where if you're going to stay hybrid or you're going to go fully remote now because you think you know offices are not great then that's where you're going yeah one of the things that I think organizations can do and make a strategic decision around is where they are located and so many businesses just decide to be in London and actually you know what if you you can we built Pier 1 down in Southampton deliberately so that we weren't in London and the access to talent. So if, if you can build a hybrid business or you can be happy to have multiple offices and you can put yourself through that, the rigor of documenting everything, then access to talent, you don't need to be in London and you can scale a very successful business with talented people outside of the M25. My, my friends with a bunch of people here, sort of the 
Silicon Roundabout and speaking to a number of the CEOs who I, I catch up on a regular basis, a lot of them are thinking, let's just get out of London, our out of London, and run this, run our businesses in a much more flexible manner. I don't know how many people are going to, I don't know any business, well, there probably will be a few, but there won't be many that will go back to what was business as usual, everybody in the office, unless they have some draconian need for it. But, um, you know, the people have, will realize now how flexible working can work and how, you know, slightly within this lockdown, it won't be as easy, but how you can make it really enjoyable. Yeah. And Brett, what... Um you know, not you know, you know lots of stuff now. But what is there? One thing that you now know that you wish you'd known at some point earlier in your in your life or career. I wish I'd known. So, running a, an executive search firm was not. I was good at it, but I actually I didn't enjoy it as much because I didn't allow myself to. Because I was I was working with entrepreneurs. I was an entrepreneur, and I just had this frustration. And I wish I'd known that all of the work that I was doing with executive search would prime me perfectly to step into this culture development element you know it's it's my vision is to help millions of people lead better work lives by changing culture globally and my mission is to help change culture development into a critical business function in the way that sales and marketing are and i'm just going to do this until i die <laughs> The time that the time that I was given learning about what I learned as, as you know about business and about startups and about growth and about scale ups as a headhunter gave you know and that the human piece gave me the ability to deliver on what I'm doing now and what I'll continue to do. Brett, that's fantastic. And what um, as well as reading the Culture Deck Decoded, what what other books should people pick up uh, that you've that you found useful on your journey? Simon, so I'm going to go for a, a hideously appalling plug but um my next my next book which will come out in the next couple of months is called the culture driven leader and um, i'm taking all of the examples of the people i've interviewed and finally getting them getting it down on paper and i'm you know i'm really excited about this because it opens up the black box of company culture it really does it gives a very deep insight into what companies do and how they do it so apologies for that plug <laughs> no, not at all. The one book that I, I recommend, which literally from a culture perspective blew the top of my brain off, is a company called An Everyone Culture. And it's by um, Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy. And they interviewed three companies, Bridgewater, Decurion, and Next Jump, on um, how they build deliberately developmental organizations. And when I first started out, I thought that Netflix and Zappos were as close to as good as it gets, but then I realized that these guys are on a completely different level. The, I've had the fortune to actually spend time inside Next Jump, and it just blows my mind every time. Yeah, no, I've been, I've been and spent some time with them as well. It is just a fascinating, absolutely fascinating organization. Yeah, they they they're um, astounding, and that's it's it's just a it's just a great book. It's hard to get your head around a little bit because a lot of it doesn't necessarily gel with people initially. Um, but I believe I believe that that is that is the future. That's the as close to optimum as you get. Fantastic, Brett. Thank you very much indeed for that. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Dominic, really great. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.